Let's open our Bibles to the minor prophet Jonah. And let's do this in one sermon. We could take four, we could take eight, but it would be belaboring points that we can make very quickly. Four little chapters, a short little book, easy to read, very different from the other prophets, as most of it is about the prophet himself rather than a prophecy or his preaching. His preaching is summarized in about one verse, and it's very short, and the message is simple, but I'll tell you, the hearers believed it. By the grace and mercy of God, his long-suffering, he's full of kindness, the very character traits that our prophet did not appreciate about him toward the Assyrians. Jonah was an early prophet. He lived no later than Jeroboam II. He's found in 2 Kings chapter 14. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Built by the cohorts of Nimrod, as you can read about in Genesis chapter 10. It was a great city by its long life from the early years of this world's history. About 60 miles around it in circumference, called a three days journey here in Scripture. Had a population, if we use America's age distribution of about 1.6 million people, because it had 120,000 according to the last verse, that didn't know their left hand from their right hand. If we make that five years of age and under, then we can extrapolate maybe a million and a half people. Nineveh was the residence of Sennacherib, the wicked king that came against Israel and Judah. And he went back there and lost his life at the hands of his own sons. God later destroyed Nineveh. A few generations after this epistle, he destroyed it to the ground by the Babylonians And the book of Nahum is all about that, and I have preached that book to you. It's called The Burden of Nineveh, because it's the destruction of that city. Tarshish was a distant Gentile place known for its silver. It's described in the Bible, Genesis, Jeremiah, and a couple of other places where Jonah fled. What we want to do, and I'm trusting that you read the the prophet, that you've read this little book, because I'm not going to read it to you. I just want to pull from its verses some lessons that we can take with us, and I hope that it will be helpful. It is a great story of history that one of the major cities on earth had a profound religious experience for a few days and repented in the way that they did and staved off God's judgment for a while by their repentance. But later He did destroy it. They were an arch enemy of Israel. And so, to a degree, you can understand the prophet's vengeance and bitterness and hatred toward them because they were a great enemy of Israel and they were pagans and they were a cruel people and they were a blasphemous people. When you read about the words of Sennacherib and his vice uh, or the captain of the host and one of his emissaries, Rabshaki, in the Bible, you know that they were an ugly people and it would be hard for a prophet to, to have affection for them. This prophet was just a little more extreme than we're we're going to allow him freedom. I hope that those of you who have a problem with your temper will understand that the book of Jonah is written for you and that I hope you will hear the next time you get mad. Doest thou well to be angry? And that you will think about how well you can justify your anger. Here we go. And let's let's be quick about it. May the Lord have mercy on us and give us some things from Jonah. It is the word of the Lord. It's inspired and scripture is inspired for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And I believe we can get all those things out of this this prophecy or this minor prophet in one sermon. Verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, The word of the Lord came to him, and called Jonah to a duty by his word, and the book is about his disobedience to God's word. God calls each of you to your duty before him, and I ask you this day, how well do you obey? You may not flee to Tarshish, but do you hear his word and change your life as he has spoken to you from his word? Verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness is come up before me. God sees wickedness in every place. 
and that should never be lost on you. If there is wickedness that's taking place in the event that took place nearly four weeks ago in Florida with the shooting of a teenager, God sees it all and God will take vengeance. And we've got to find comfort in things like that because that event right now and the response across this nation and from the highest office in our country is very troubling. God sees the wickedness in every place and eventually it exceeds His long-suffering and it troubles Him and He judges it. Do not think the eyes of the Lord miss anything. The Bible tells us the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And the Word of God tells us that all things are naked and open under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. From this verse... I want you to notice that God sees men's wickedness, so we can be thankful for that. But I also want you to see that the work of the ministry is to cry against a people. And I've I've taught you this recently. You know, the work of the ministry is to cry against it, preach the word. But men today hardly ever preach the word against people because they want to be popular and they want to be pleasing to their audience. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says that, you know, the men were going to turn their ears away from hearing the truth and be turned into fables. And yet, right here we can see what ministers are supposed to do, and that's to cry against the sins of people. In 2 Corinthians 10, it's described as making war against hearers. And that may not sound very pleasant, but that's the real work of the ministry. Out of the 168 hours of the week, we gather in here for just a few hours to have someone tell us where we're wrong. You don't need someone to tell you that you're right very often because you do that the other 164 hours yourself. We need someone to tell us that we're wrong. And so we see the call to the ministry and something that's lacking today. And it's a shame because we live in a nation that's got to be equal to Assyria or worse because God's blessed us more than He ever blessed the Assyrians with the knowledge of Himself. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish. I'm in the third verse of the first chapter from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. This prophet of God, and one of the most successful evangelists in the Bible, shows us on a constant basis that at best he was a man. And so he hears the word of the Lord, and and, and you know because you've read the whole book why he didn't want to go preach at Nineveh. Because he didn't want them converted and saved. He wanted the city burned up. And he knew that God was a God of long-suffering mercy and would spare that city, and so he didn't want to go. And so he was so committed to having them all destroyed that he'd sacrifice his own life, as you uh, will read about in three different places because he thought that the city should be destroyed. But before picking on him or despising him too much, how many times have you known God's will and not done it? And if the truth be told, we've all done it. We may not have fled and bought a ticket to some other place, but we just make a decision, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to be the spouse I should be or whatever it might be. But our God fills heaven and earth, and you're not going to escape from him by stopping coming to church. You can stop coming to church and you won't have to hear my voice anymore, but my voice is not what's going to get you in trouble. What's going to get you in trouble is the presence of the Lord and He fills heaven and earth. Jeremiah 23, 23 says, Where are you going to go to get away from the God that fills heaven and earth? Jonah foolishly thought he could get away from the Lord by getting away from where he was worshipped. By leaving temple worship and leaving his office as a prophet, he could flee to Tarshish and the Lord wouldn't bother him there. Oh, he's making things worse for himself as we know. Verse 4 tells us about a great wind and a mighty tempest and the ship was likely to be broken. Of course, the flesh would say, these circumstances in my life are just chance events. It's Mother Nature. Oh, there are no such things in life. When things like this happen, the Bible says in the day of adversity, consider. And Jonah should have done some quick considering, but we know he was sound asleep. And we'll have something to say on that in just a moment. 
There's no things as chance or just nature in your life. God is in governing and ruling control of all of them because He's the Lord of all such things. But what a wonderful opportunity right here for Jonah to have repented. When God brings negative events into your life, they are for you to consider, is the Lord speaking to me and to repent of anything that you might be doing wrong? But if you're sleeping and you're ignoring what's going on in your life, if you're just going through the motions of your boring life, you'll miss some of the the messages that God's trying to convey to you. Jonah had another opportunity to repent, but he didn't. Now verse 5 tells us the mariners were very afraid, and they're crying to their gods and throwing the cargo of the ship overboard. But Jonah's down in the ship sleeping, as it told us as early as the third verse, he went down into it. He was not on deck. He went down into the ship so that he could go to sleep. It's so amusing, and it is so stupid and wicked to hear rebels describe their peace with God when they're rebelling against His Word. You know, some will go out from us because they don't want to be under the constraint of a church that tries to practice the Bible. They want to go do things their way, and they love to write us later and tell us what peace they have. Well, that's just a bunch of malarkey. My flesh would be at peace if I could quit right now and walk out of here. My flesh would be at peace. And Jonah was at peace. Look at the man. He's down there sleeping soundly through a storm that is so bad, these mariners are taking a huge financial loss by throwing the cargo overboard. He's sound asleep because I have a peace about it. Whenever you hear someone, I have a peace about it, they're not following the Bible at all. They're following their feelings, and they're wrong. The mariners were much closer to walking with God than Jonah was because they were afraid and they were crying to the only gods they knew. But I want you to realize that peace is not how God conveys anything to us. He doesn't give us peace to teach us His will. We get peace when we do His will. And we learn His will from His Word. And His Word was, go preach in Nineveh. And then they said to each other, being the fatalists that they were, let's cast lots and find out who's guilty of bringing this upon us. They did not fear God at this point in time at all, but they just believed in chance events. Let's find out if there's someone guilty. And so they cast their lots and it fell on Jonah. You know, we know the Bible. We know that when you cast lots like that, the Bible has said the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. And we also know the rule of Numbers 32-23. Be sure your sin will find you out. Oh, my brethren, can you learn that? Be sure your sin will find you out. And you say, well, I've been sinning in a certain way for two years now and nothing's happened. Then Psalm 50 was written for you and you can go there and find out what God has to say about you and how He's going to soon tear you in pieces. Because he says that sometimes I don't do anything and you begin to think that I'm a God like unto you. But I'm going to tear you in pieces. He that being often reproved. Now that means you may get away with it for two years. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Now in that verse it sounds like everything happens bang bang. Oh no. He that being often reproved means that there was a process of time where you continued on in the wrong way and God sent your conscience to pound you and God sent the Word of God to pound you and God sent some adversity in your life to pound you but you continued to rebel against the Word of God and suddenly there will be a change in your life and there will not be a remedy out of it unless God has mercy and there was no remedy out of the whale unless God had mercy. Verse 9, they go, and they, go, they go down and wake up Jonah and, and ask him a bunch of questions because they want to know who this man is that's sleeping while they're afraid for their lives. And he tells them he's a Hebrew, and they would have known some about the Hebrew religion because they're dealing, they're coming into the port at Joppa. They would have known about the Hebrew religion. Then he told them, I serve, I am that I am. Amen. 
the Lord in all caps. He's the God of heaven, which made the sea and the dry land. Now, if he's the God of heaven, the sea and the dry land, where are you going to go to get away from him? Tarshish? He made the dry land. You're going to go on a, you're going to buy a ticket on a boat? He made the sea. You're going to get in a plane and fly away? He made the heavens. Now, Jonah just confesses everything there, in summary form, some wonderful things about our God. Can you identify our God against the gods of the heathen? Our God's the creator of all things. How could Jonah admit this about his God and continue on in disobedience against them? Every one of us in here would confess with our lips and tell anyone that I worship Jehovah, I am that I am of the Bible, and He's the creator of all things. And yet, do we ever sin? It shouldn't happen, but it does happen. God have mercy upon us. Let us not be like Jonah. Let's be better than Jonah. And yet, we're not going to despise the man. Because it's in the Bible for our learning. Our God is not at all like the gods of those around us, even those who call themselves Christians. They're worshiping another Jesus. Then were the men exceedingly afraid. When they heard that he was a Hebrew, remember, the stories of God's dealing with the nations around Israel went far and wide. When they heard that he was a Hebrew and that he worshiped the Lord Jehovah, They were exceedingly afraid, and they said, Why have you done this? Now, isn't that something? How in the world can mariners that are pagans ask the right question? How? Why have you done this? Of Jonah, who was sinning against the Lord, for the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. He had explained what's going on here. He's told me to go do something, and I don't want to do it. And I took a ticket on this ship, and I'm sorry, guys, but it's my fault. But now look at the fatalist that Jonah was. Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, in the twelfth verse, so shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Now isn't there a little bit of fear of death in you? The way that you go to the doctor and worry about your health? Is there a little bit of the fear of death? Why didn't this man have any? Because for him to die was better than to go preach to Nineveh and have them live. It was easy for him. He is full of vengeance toward the Ninevites and the Assyrians. So he said, go ahead and throw me over. If he cared about the mariners, why didn't he kneel down and ask God to forgive him and say, turn this ship around, save the rest of the cargo, I'll preach at Nineveh, and spare all your lives. But instead he said, just chuck me over, and the sea's going to calm down immediately. This man did not want to preach at Nineveh. Now he was a prophet of God, and he knew that he would be gathered to his people. But he wasn't going to preach at Nineveh. But he will. But but do do you see the dilemma that we have in this book? about the man's character, why didn't he drop to his knees and confess his sins and save the mariners, calm the seas, and save his own life? He was willing to die for his conviction that that city deserved to be destroyed. I hope, I hope that if we have personal enemies, that we are able to pray God's blessing upon them, that we are able to do good to them, and not be like Jonah. Now listen, there were enemies in the world that Israel was supposed to annihilate, but this particular city God had charged him to go preach to, and as a prophet of God, and knowing God's character, he knew what was going to happen. They were going to be saved. What an evangelist. When he knows his ministry is going to be successful, he runs away. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel knew their ministries were not going to be successful, and they were faithful to them to death. What a difference. And that which ones should we be like? Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. It staggers me that the man hated Nineveh this much, that he would be thrown into the sea for the mariner's sake, but he's not going to let Nineveh be saved. Verse 13, the mariners have more character than he does, and they row with all their might to save his life. And I want to tell you something here. This, this is, these are the gleanings. 
You can row with all your might. But when the Lord's blowing against you, your biceps can be bulging and your forearms huge. And sweat can be beating up on your forehead and your heart and cardiovascular system can be doing the best they can. You are not going to make progress when God blows against you. They did everything in their power to get that ship toward land so that they could be preserved without having to throw this man over. But they couldn't. And you know the Bible says, though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not go unpunished. You cannot make a confederacy and apply your efforts and preserve yourself from the chastening hand of God. There's no place you can go. There's no insurance policy that you can buy. There's nothing you can do when God chooses to chasten you. The scourge will meet the back. Or the prophet will meet the fish. You're not going to get away from it. As, as you read through a little book like this, in every verse there's little reminders, if you know the Bible, of God's doctrine of how we should live and relate to Him. They couldn't bring it to land. In verse 13 it tells us that they tried so hard but they couldn't do it. Then they asked the Lord. They've picked up the name of the true God of the Hebrews from Jonah and they asked Him to have mercy upon them for His blood because they're going to throw him overboard because they're about to die themselves. So they threw him over. In verse 15, immediately the sea stopped her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, it tells us in verse 16. These pagan mariners, to a degree, feared the Lord. Don't get too excited that this whole ship of crewmen is going to be in heaven. The devils fear the Lord and tremble. We shouldn't get too excited there. They were afraid for their lives. If you've ever talked to someone who's on their deathbed or someone who's in prison, you will learn about fire insurance. Fire insurance is when someone will tell you how much they love Jesus because they're so lonely or they're in prison or they're afraid of dying. These men were afraid of dying and they were so thankful that the sea was calmed immediately. We don't need to assume any more about it than that. And, And that's not the lesson of the book of Jonah. Just because men feared the Lord exceedingly, His power to control the elements doesn't mean they feared Him in a way that for the rest of their lives they sought to live for Him with a holy life as the Bible defines. It doesn't say that. It says the immediate response of a change in circumstances. Verse 17, Now the Lord had prepared. And when we read this, I speak to you, my brothers and sisters, right now, God has your fish prepared. God has your fish prepared and you will soon be swallowed down alive unless you repent. There is nothing you can do to get rid of that fish. It is swimming through the water behind your boat. And though you can't see it, it's there just below the surface. And it's hungry and it's got a big mouth and it has strong stomach acid. And you're going into it for a swim. The fish is there. Now the Lord had prepared You know, everything our God does, according to Acts chapter 15, is known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. It is fun to go home and Google whales in the Mediterranean. There's a gray whale in there right now that came from the Pacific. You say, the Atlantic is the one past the uh, Straits of Gibraltar. The Pacific. Skeptics have always said that there's no whales in the Mediterranean. Well, they have found whales that are unique to the Mediterranean, and sometimes whales get off course from the Pacific and get into the Mediterranean. And it doesn't matter if God prepared a fish, which Jesus called a whale, in the Gospel of Matthew, then it's going to be there. And brethren, it's... It scares me to read. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish. What has He prepared for your life? What has He prepared that's following you right now? There's one thing to do. Let's drop to the deck of the ship and ask God to forgive us right now, right today, before we crack those doors at the back and go home and purpose to do whatever God has commanded us to do. We all have our duties before God. It may not be to preach in Nineveh, and it isn't, But it's other things that we're supposed to be doing. May the Lord help us to do them and to remember this lesson. 
Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah in mercy and in chastening. Aren't you thankful that fish was there? Or he would have drowned. He had free passage to shore. It was just going to be an acid ride. As he, Did you like his little prayer in, in the second chapter where he describes, and this is the second time I've mentioned it, he's got seaweed around his head and he's got prison bars around him, the rib cage of this thing, and seaweed, and he's taking a trip to great depths, whether the pressure, he could feel the pressure change inside or not, we don't know, but he is down deep. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, just like our Lord Jesus Christ was in the ground. Chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed. You know, when I read those words, it just makes me hate my flesh and hate my pride and hate different aspects of my person and character, and I want you to do the same. Then Jonah prayed. Then Jonah prayed. Why didn't he pray when the word of the Lord came to him and said, go preach to that great city? What a calling. What a blessing. To be the man that went and preached to the greatest city on earth at that time, the capital of the Assyrian Empire? Why not pray then? Why not pray when there's a storm that is about to break the ship in pieces? Why not pray then? Why do you have to be brought to your knees? And I'm speaking to you, not to Jonah. Isn't that the truth about us sometimes? Let's pray now. Let's pray right now. You say, well, I'm prospering right now. Pray now before adversity comes. Learn your lessons now. Give God all the glory now. He will bring you to your knees. Then Jonah prayed. Then Jonah prayed. Why do we have to have something bad happen in our lives? before we get serious about the Lord. This is the gleaning of Jonah for us. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. We've got to get in a fish's belly before we pray to the Lord. That's terrible shame. An indictment of our character. Verse 2 tells us this. And said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord... And he heard me. Is there a gleaning in that verse for us? The Lord can hear you from wherever you get yourself. This wasn't just the Lord putting him someplace. Jonah got himself there. And you know, our sins cause the problems in our lives. I love to tell the Lord everything good, everything beautiful, everything pleasant, everything pleasing that is righteous comes from you. Every bit of trouble, every bit of pain comes from me. And I tell the Lord that. But oh, sometimes we want our way. But even when our way gets us into a fish's belly, there is God our Father to hear us when we pray unto the Lord. Isn't that wonderful about Him? That even when we get ourselves into such terrible predicaments as Jonah is in, it says, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, He was in a whale's belly. He wasn't in the lake of fire, but he calls it the belly of hell, cried I, because that was going to be his grave. That was going to be his end, physically, if the Lord didn't save him, and thou heardest my voice. How That's so wonderful. There in two, chapter 2 and verse 2. Should he hear such prayers? Should God listen to the prayer of a man like Jonah? I don't think so. But that's why he's more merciful than I am. If I had ordained a man to be a prophet, I gave him the greatest job possible to go preach at Nineveh. I gave him a storm to to warn him that something bad is going to happen real soon. I I ordered the lot to fall out out of the dozens or hundreds that were on that ship to Jonah. Don't you think you'd start to be getting the idea, I think the Lord's out here too, that I haven't really fled from his presence. Should the Lord hear a prayer like that, When you're in the whale, I'd say no. But the Lord's long-suffering, very long-suffering. And so we can be thankful. And the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through comfort and patience of the Scriptures might have hope that no matter what you get yourself into, and you shouldn't get yourself into anything, but when you do, 
Cry unto the Lord, and he'll hear you. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to pass over his prayer. I've already referred to it a couple of times. But I do want the fourth verse. Then said, then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. He felt so far from God, and sometimes you're going to think to yourself, I am so far from the Lord right now. My sins have separated between me and my God, and he can't hear me. I am cast out of thy sight. Yet, I will look again toward thy holy temple. I'm going to pray toward Jerusalem and where you're worshipped and toward you again. I am seeking your face right now. And verse 7, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. He lifted his eyes up. If he could lift his eyes, he lifted his heart up, and he prayed unto the God of heaven. And the God of heaven heard him in verses 4 and 7. It's a shame that we have to read in verse 7, when my soul fainted within me. You know, while your soul is still defending you, and your soul is still saying, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm getting away with this, I'm not that bad, then you don't pray. But the Lord can bring you to fainting. The Lord can bring fearful calamities upon you that can overwhelm you. He can cause you grief from the inside out in all sorts of ways. He knows what strings to pull that will hurt you the most. If you do not live a holy and a righteous life. And so right now we got a purpose wherever your Nineveh is. Whether it's your marriage, your children, your finances, your mind, your soul, your Bible reading, your prayer. Wherever your Nineveh is, run to it and preach whatever God's told you to do. When I had fainted, within me I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to His holy temple. Wonderful. Thank you, Lord, for hearing us when we get ourselves into such trouble. But brethren, I want to tell you that if you keep turning your back on God, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 24 through 29 tell us that God at some point will not hear your prayer. And He will leave you to the damage and destruction of your own calamities. And He'll laugh when your fear cometh. And He'll mock at you being so scared because you would have none of his reproof when you had the chance. That's in Proverbs chapter 1. I like the 8th verse here. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. You say, what does that mean? It's one of my favorite verses in the whole book. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. If you put your trust in anything that is contrary to God's word, you must hate yourself and anything good happening to you. Because when you trust in things contrary to God's word, those things are vain. They're lies, they're deceitful, and you must not like good things happening to you because since you're trusting in things contrary to God's word, God is going to punish you. It includes idols. You know, the pig, the heathen trust in their idol gods. So they trust in lying vanities and they observe lying vanities and they forsake their own mercy. They're cutting themselves out of any blessing. If you, try, if you think that you can sin and get away with it because it's what you call a little sin, you're trusting in a lying vanity, and you are forsaking your own mercy because God is not going to be merciful to you. Because you are trusting in a lie against His Word. Lady Wisdom would put it this way in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 36. They that hate me love death. And if you trust in a lie against doing God's will, you think you can flee from the presence of the Lord, you think you can leave this church and get away from what we preach and teach, you're forsaking your own mercy. Verse 9, I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. Isn't that wonderful that in both, both testaments we know what a sacrifice is that God accepts? It's thanksgiving. But I want you to note, it says the voice of thanksgiving. If you can't get it out past your vocal cords where the rest of us can hear it, it doesn't qualify according to Jonah 2 and verse 9. I will pay that I have vowed. It is better not to vow than to vow and not pay, as the preacher told us in in Ecclesiastes 5, as Solomon told us. Now Jonah may have made some ministerial vows when he was ordained. Jonah is probably making some vows in the belly of the whale. But he's telling the Lord, 
I'm going to offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving with my voice, and I'm going to pay my vows. You get me out of this mess, and I'll keep every commitment that I've made to you. I will go preach at Nineveh if you'll get me out of this mess. This is in verse 9. Then it says, salvation is of the Lord. That salvation is of the Lord is quoted far and wide by people out of context. Just always remember where it comes from. It's right here in Jonah chapter 2, and it's God delivering the prophet, the mad prophet, out of the belly of the fish. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. That was a predicament impossible of deliverance to be in the belly of a whale. What are you going to do there? Can you go to your spouse and confess your foolishness and ask them to forgive you and that you are committed to fulfill your marriage covenant? That's easy compared to getting out of the belly of a whale. Your marriage isn't what it should be, but there's something you can do. What are you going to do in the belly of a whale? Punch it in the side, hope it gets sick, and vomit you out? It's not going to feel you down there. But the Lord spake to it. And the amazing thing that we ought to glean from this is God can deliver you from any predicament you get yourself into or He puts you in. No matter how impossible it seems to the human mind, the Lord can deliver you. And Jonah was ejected on dry land. Now whether this whale took a running swimming run at shore and came up onto the sand and spit him out or if he had a little distance to travel. None of it makes any difference to the Lord. It's all easy. And the Lord is able to do miracles in your life when we repent. When we repent and do what He's told us that we ought to do. Chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came into Jonah the second time. What do you get out of that verse? We're gleaning. Is the God of heaven the God of second chances? That's what you ought to get out of that verse. He is the God of second chances. And you know better than that, don't you? He's the God of third chances and fourth chances. It just happens to say second in this particular place that the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Oh, thank you, Lord, for being so long-suffering and merciful and patient toward us. Reader, Hearer, audience, brothers and sisters, you are not getting a second chance today. You're getting your millionth chance. What in my life am I not doing that matches Scripture? Where am I not obeying as fully and as passionately and as zealously as I should be? You're getting your millionth chance, not your second right now, to be thinking about Jonah and applying him to your own life. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. No pastor, no man has the right to preach or say anything other than what God has told him to say. The crying need of the perilous times that we live in right now are for men to preach the word, which is why we should be praying for more men that will preach the word. As the scriptures tell us, Now Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. Remember, it was three days around it. History tells us it was a 60-mile city in circumference. He goes a day's trip into it, and he preaches a pretty simple message. And it's found in the fourth verse. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's not a very popular message. But it was the message God gave him, and that's the message he delivered. Forty days. And this place will be destroyed. The kind of preaching that was once called hellfire and brimstone preaching is hardly done anymore, anywhere. And that is to preach against sin and to preach God's judgment against sinners. It's hardly done anymore. Jonah did it. And so we glean from that a reminder of what we ought to be praying for. That God would raise up more men that would do it. And that God would make sure that we continue to do it in this church. But now what a blessing that we read about in verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God. A million and a half Assyrians, capital city of Nineveh, believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth 
from the greatest of them even to the least of them. These pagan Assyrians were blasphemous enemies of Jehovah. Yet, look what they did. God can bless His Word. This does not teach us, and nor should we run to the conclusion, that all these were the elect of God. These people repented for the time being of their wickedness to save their skin, to save their assets. We don't have to press it any farther than that. The prophet didn't write this for us to speculate on whether they had their names in the book of life or not. He just shows us that repentance works, even when you're a pagan Assyrian. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. He can turn the heart of man or a group of people to repent in various ways. You know, you go in for a job interview and you're so terrified of the people you have to interview with, and yet God's able to turn the hearts of the whole city of Nineveh at the preaching of a man who hated him. And don't let, you should glean something from that. The character of the man preaching and his life does not have a thing to do with his message. Is his message true by the word of God or not? That's all that matters. This question pops up all the time. It's not the character of the man that makes the message true or not. It's whether the message is by the scriptures or not. Judas Iscariot preached for three and a half years and performed miracles, and he did it so successfully that the other apostles did not know he was the one that would betray our Lord. No one was ever rebaptized that Judas Iscariot baptized. It doesn't have a thing to do with Judas Iscariot. Is it true according to the Word of God? That's what counts. Listen, I, I get let, oh, letters about music this week. Is it okay if I listen to hymns sung by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir? Because aren't they guilty of devil worship and some of the most heinous and terrible heresies? Yes. But who cares who's singing it? Does it sound good? And are the lyrics true? Enjoy it. You know, the truth. if the truth be told, as we thumb through the pages of our hymnals, and I wrote this back, if you thumb through the pages of our hymnals, there's hardly a man in there that agrees with us in every point of doctrine. When I say hardly, there's none that agree with us in every point of doctrine. Many of those people that write hymns that we love would have persecuted Baptists because they were part of the established Church of England. Anyway, the point that we're at right here is that even though Jonah hated this peop- hated the Ninevites, and he wasn't merciful and gracious like God was, and he had a bad attitude, and he was angry and he couldn't justify it, his preaching was still true that God was going to overthrow that city in 40 days if they didn't repent. The repentance is assumed. It just says, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. When God comes to a man like Hezekiah and says, set your house in order, you will not recover, but you're going to die. Thou shalt surely die. Is there something that you can do, even though you hear such a terrible, final word of judgment? Pray. Did Hezekiah live 15 more years? But God had said, Thou shalt surely die. Thou shalt surely die if you don't pray and seek repentance. That is to be understood because of what happened. David hears the words, The baby's going to die. But he kept praying for that baby and fasting for that baby until it actually did die. Is that when we should give up? If you've got the faith to keep on praying after a baby dies, you can find a man named Jairus who just kept on praying anyway. And when the servants arrived and said, your daughter is dead, don't don't bother the master anymore, Jesus encouraged him to keep right on believing. And so we, we just keep on after the Lord because His power and His mercy and His grace and His long suffering is beyond our imagination. So the people of Nineveh believed, and the king even made a great change in his life in, in verse 6. And he had it proclaimed throughout the whole city in verse 7. And in verse 8, Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, 
Let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. This is true repentance described in verse 8. Measure the repentance in this passage of Scripture we have before us. First of all, they believed. That's back in verse 5. They believed, they fasted, they mourned, they prayed, and they turned from all sin. That is true repentance. You believe, they exercise faith toward God, repentance toward our Lord Jesus Christ. They believed, they fasted, they mourned, they prayed, and turned from all sin. This is the kind of repentance that clears men. Like 2 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11 tells us, What carefulness it wrought in you! Yea, what vehemence! Yea, what revenge! Yea, what zeal! Ye have altogether cleared yourself in this matter. True repentance works. But notice it wasn't just words. It doesn't tell us in the next verse that God heard their repentance. We're gleaning. God saw their repentance. Verse 10, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that He had said that He would do unto them, and He did it not. But He saw the the reformed lives. And so when you're confessing your sins, you make sure that you get up and destroy every evil thing in your life, and that you reinforce every positive thing in your life, and that you reform your life to match what you have just prayed. Your words won't cut it. The Lord sees more than that. He sees the thoughts and intents of our heart. He doesn't just hear the words. So there's a lesson here that we're gleaning, that God saw something. He didn't hear, and it doesn't say He saw the fasting. It says He saw their works that they turned from their evil way. And let that be a definition for the way that we repent when we have sinned. Let's change our evil ways. The greatest sacrifice that you can ever give God, the most certain way to Him, is a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, Thou wilt not despise. Psalm 51 and verse 17. So we come to chapter 4. Unbelievable. But, what do we have a but there for? Shouldn't we have glory to God in the highest? The whole city of Nineveh has repented. But it displeased Jonah a little, a lot, or exceedingly. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was a little very angry. It's been said that the best of men are but men. And Jonah was a prophet of God, but he was a man. And being a man, he shows, like you and me, we're very, very weak. And he had a problem with the Ninevites. He knew they were the enemies of Israel. Who knows about some uncle that they'd killed in a battle or whatever had gone on in his life, but he wasn't going to forgive them. And he didn't want them saved. He might have felt nationalistic about Israel. We're the only ones that worship God. We should never feel that way about our church, that we're the only ones God cares about. We're the only ones that have it right. If we see someone else making great efforts to reform themselves and turn to the Lord, we should be thankful and rejoice. At such a thing. Doesn't the Bible tell us that real love doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth? Right. He didn't care about this nation repenting. It displeased him exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord. And what kind of a prayer is this? Lord, correct my anger. I'm angry for a good reason. I told you in the beginning when you told me to go preach in Nineveh, that I didn't want to go preach because I knew reading this verse was very hard for me. O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. Here's what he said. I knew that thou art a gracious God. Amen. I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee, of the evil. When you intend to do evil to someone and they repent, you repent of the evil you intended to do against them. You're gracious. You're merciful. You're slow to anger. You're of great kindness. Those are wonderful things. Amen. Jonah's complaining about those things because it's those things he knew that God would show toward Nineveh and he didn't want those things shown toward Nineveh. Now, we prayed this morning in this back room, and I hope that right now your heart is such before the Lord that if there is any spirit in you like Jonah, get rid of it. Lord, get that out of me. 
Let me have your spirit of being gracious, of being long-suffering, of being merciful, of being slow to anger, and of loving to repenting of the evil that you are going to do when a person repents. I hope that there's no one in here that is like the older brother of the prodigal. That when he came home from the field and he heard the celebrating, he chewed his father out in anger and said, I've served you faithfully every day of my life and you're throwing a feast for that little prodigal that wasted his inheritance? Remember? The Lord Jesus Christ was rebuking the Pharisees of the Jews by that little lesson. And let it never be true of us. When we see someone that sins and the corruptness of our heart is, their sins are worse than ours. You know, Nineveh was more righteous in this little four-chapter book than Jonah was. You see someone sin in some way that you haven't sinned in overtly. You know, sexual sins are usually the cause of this particular thought that goes through the hearts of men. And then that person repents. They're received by the church. They're accepted, whatever the case might be. And you resent it. You wicked Pharisee. You are a million times worse than that sinner ever was. Because you're guilty of a sin a million times worse. Self-righteousness. We should love it when sinners repent. Of any kind. And we should want to honor them. Embrace them. And put a robe upon them and a ring on their finger and shoes on their feet. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunities that we've had. Then said the Lord, after this prayer, here's the kind of response the Lord gave him, and it was a good response. I'm in verse 4. Doest thou well to be angry? Now Jonah had concluded his prayer in the third verse by saying, Lord, I'm so worked up about this, and I am so disappointed in what you have done about this city of Nineveh that you can just go ahead and kill me. Why is this even in the Bible? You're asking me. I'm going to tell you. Because you're Jonah's cousin. And I'm Jonah's cousin. I can get angry sometimes. And if the Lord were to say to me, Doest thou well to be angry? I hope I'll respond differently than this man does. I am wrong. I am not doing well. I shouldn't be angry. Lord, forgive me. I didn't rule my spirit. I had a meltdown, and instead of calling it a meltdown, it's just flat out plain sin. Have mercy upon me. Take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Why? Because God had shown kindness to sinners and had practically forgiven them in the city of Nineveh. Doest thou well to be angry? Are those words that we should glean from this book and take with us and tuck in our pocket or write on the palm of our hands? Doest thou well to be angry? I have a son and a daughter sitting in this assembly. Then all I can think about is that question. Because they saw me have a meltdown over some ridiculous little event in the last couple of weeks. And they know who they are, and I know who they are, and that's all that really matters. Because I'm just going to tell you that I can read Jonah and say he was really strange, and he was really messed up, but know that at times I'm just like Jonah, and I'm thankful that I can turn toward his holy temple, and he hears me. Salvation is of the Lord. And he hasn't swallowed me by a whale yet. Lord, let those words pound us, poke us, gouge us, pierce, slap us whenever we're angry. The Bible says, be ye angry and sin not, Ephesians 4.26. There's a place for anger, but I'm not talking about that kind of anger. So, Jonah makes his prayer. He knows the timeline. Now, this is a prophecy, and it's a 40-day prophecy. The city's got to be destroyed in after 40 days. So he goes outside the city. He makes himself a booth. It's called a box seat in baseball. 
and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. He was so excited, he's still hoping against hope, even though what he just said, because he's got so much anger inside him against Nineveh. So he's sitting out there watching. You know, I don't know if he's got himself a long stick with marshmallows on the end of it that he can hold over the city of Nineveh and roast himself some marshmallows, but he is going to enjoy what happens to that city. And the Lord gives him the little lesson of the gourd, and you're familiar with it, and I'm not going to go through all those verses. But I want to tell you, I want to tell you something, because I want to glean something right here. All of a sudden, a gourd popped up out of nowhere and grew very rapidly in one day, contrary to all of nature, and grew in the exact position to go right over his head. And he was... It's so neat. It's hot out here. And now I feel so much better. It says all this. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd in verse 6. Then a worm comes up, chews that thing down, and all of a sudden the shade's gone. And Jonah is all angry again. And the Lord sent a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon his head that he fainted. And verse 8, wished, he wished in himself to die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Don't you ever say words like that. I might as well be dead. God's given you a life and he's given you something to do with that life. Go do it. Don't be like Jonah. Now we've got to hear the question again. Doest thou well to be angry about that gourd? But before we jump to that, I want to remind you about something. I want to glean this. When you're disobeying God and you have, a, you have a bad attitude toward God, I'm using Jonah, you're doing something wrong in your life and something good happens. Don't you dare take that goodness from God and bask in that goodness and be exceeding glad because of the gourd. Because there's still a problem. There's still a problem. And the goodness of God that put the gourd there ought to lead you to repentance. The goodness of God should lead us to repentance. The goodness of God should not lead us to complacence, to where we think that we're doing okay. It should convict us. Jonah should have known he was wrong, and you you know when you're wrong. And when something good happens, don't think God's approving of your life in what you're doing that is wrong. He is leading you to repentance. That is Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 that says the goodness of God should lead us to repentance. Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? The Lord asked Jonah in verse 9, and he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. This gourd just left me exposed to the sun. Well, where'd the gourd come from? It came from the Lord. And the Lord said, wait a minute, you've had pity on the gourd for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. I arranged all these circumstances to give you a little bit of shade. You didn't have a thing to do with it, and you're all upset about it. Doest thou well to be angry? I do well to be angry, even unto death. When the Lord arranges little circumstances like in like that in your life, that they're good, then they're bad, they're good, and they're bad, and the Lord, who's in control of all your circumstances, is trying to get your attention. And in this particular case, the attention was, you, who are so full of angry and hate toward the Ninevites, are having pity toward this gourd that a worm ate it and it's now gone. That city has 120,000 children in it under the age of five. Shouldn't I have pity on it? Oh, what an example for us. You know, we've got 10,000 talents in Matthew chapter 18, verses 100 pence. Here we've got a gourd against a city of a million and a half people. The Lord is constantly doing that to you, to us. Do you know events similar to this in your life? I do. I do. When I read Jonah, And even though I don't want to be at all like Jonah, at times I've been like Jonah, and sometimes the Lord has spoken to me, 
And sometimes He's convicted me and I've continued on in my whatever it was that I was doing. Lord, have mercy upon us and convict us with these things. Should I not spare Nineveh? You know, when you look at Jonah and he wasn't afraid to die and he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. That doesn't show a strong man. A strong man is one who can rule his spirit and who would say that anger is wrong. I confess that to you, God. Thank you for confronting me about it and asking that question. I am wrong. Forgive me. Should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand? I gleaned this from that last verse. You know, the world, if a plane goes down and there's 317 people on board and 22 of them are children, the world can only talk about the children for the most part. It's as if children die. It's something really terrible. I don't, I don't find that in the Bible whatsoever. On any occasion, and even here, especially here, it just makes me sick. Who cares if they're children or not? 317 people died. Children don't have any effect on the world. If their parents are on the plane as well, it just makes me sick. You know, when the Lord sent the Israelites into Canaan, He told them to destroy the nations utterly. Man and child and suckling infant. And so the Lord, and I know the book doesn't end the way you might think that it should. There's no valediction here or the opposite of a salutation with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ being unto you all. It ends with the words, and also much cattle. So for those people that get all worked up about the kids that are in a city or the kids in a bus or the kids in a plane, the Bible just wants to point out there's cows there too. So we glean everything we can from all four chapters. And that's not how we want to end. We want to end with, we want to have a love for souls. We need a love for souls. The souls that are in our church, the souls in our family, wherever the Lord leads us to them, we want to love for them. And we want to pray for their repentance. And we want to see their recovery. And we want to find out about great horror stories of great sinners that have had great salvation provided by the Lord Jesus Christ. We should never think, that person scares me. That person has such a terrible past. Why would you think that way? You're ten times worse than they are because of your self-righteousness. You are a threat to this church at all times by even breathing. We should be thankful for the greatest of sinners that God saves because the greatest of sinners are the greatest of saints. The Apostle Paul was the great saint that he was because he was forgiven so much. When he got to the church at Jerusalem for the first time in Acts chapter 9, they didn't want him in there. Until Barnabas came and confirmed that he had truly been converted. And what a man the Apostle Paul was because what a sinner he was as Saul of Tarsus against the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, brethren, let's remember the words. Doest thou well to be angry? Let's remind each other of them. If we happen to be in a situation where we see someone getting bent out of shape, all we have to do is whisper in their ear, Doest thou well to be angry? The Bible warns us in Matthew chapter 5, Be not angry with your brother without a cause. There are causes sometimes for anger. This wasn't one of those causes. Let's remember that no matter what we get ourselves into by our sins and our foolishness, God can hear our prayers. God can deliver us from a predicament that you think is humanly impossible, and it is. It is humanly impossible, but it's not impossible for God. There are so many little lessons in this book that are a whole lot bigger than whales and seas and ships. There's lessons for us to glean. May we go out of this place today and not one of us be anything like Jonah the rest of this day. And as long as the Lord will give us conviction from this lesson, let us pray for other souls. Let us pray for souls outside our family. If all you do is pray for the souls in your family, it just shows your incredible Self, selfishness. Pray for other souls. Let's get outside ourselves. Jonah was being forced by God to get outside of the commonwealth of Israel and care about the Assyrians. And he didn't want to do it. Let's be willing to do it. Of all kinds, creeds, colors, nationalities, cultures, backgrounds. Let's have a compassion for souls 
like the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. If it wouldn't have been for Paul's compassion for souls, how would we have ever heard the gospel? Lord, have mercy upon us and save us from the obvious foolishness and sins that we can see in Jonah's life. We thank you for putting this in the Bible. And we don't disparage him, O Lord, because we know that we're so much like him. Correct us, teach us, convict us, remind us of this lesson, and let us be faithful unto thee, and take your word and obey it in every part of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.